the race is on and it looks like heartaches and the winner loses all. Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you in the Brooklyn bunker. The suitcase is packed, getting ready to head over to the UK tonight. Going to be at the Cheltenham Festival next week. Going to be on Sky Sports Racing this weekend. Really looking forward to that, but also looking forward to this show we have for you today. And to begin it, I will introduce the usual co-host of this program from Windstar Farm. He is Sean Tugel. Sean, how are you today? Enjoying a beautiful spring day in the bluegrass. Sun's out. We've got poles dropping everywhere. Besides for the group of guests we have today, including Mikey Calman, who uh, excellent horseman. I'm sure he has some great stories to give us uh, over his years here in the bluegrass as well. And, and uh, hopefully another uh, one of those grade one winners or million-dollar horses have been born on his farm this year. I like the sound of that. Let's bring him in right now uh, as teased there by our man, Sean. We've got Mike Callanan. Mike, how are you today? I'm not too bad, Pete. Not too bad. Uh, good to see you, Sean. Family um, strong and enjoying a beautiful day here in the bluegrass. It's, uh, it's a little bit bittersweet as an Irishman today. We lost Jerry Dilger last night, unfortunately, but uh, the sun is shining and that's, you know, I suppose in the, on the horses here, there's life and death, I suppose, in horses. Uh, it's kind of the cycle of life. Well, let's start right there with, with some of your, your memories of, uh, of Mr. Dildra and what he meant to you. Uh, he was for all, I suppose, not even Irishman, just horseman in general. He was a mentor. He uh, was a good friend, had no airs of grace about him at all. And, you know, he just, I suppose, he's just one of the guys who, started a lot of people off in this industry and just was always there to help help somebody out if they were in bother and and he bred a lot of good horses like Sean has has, a, has one of them over there and always dreaming and uh, he's bred a he's, he's left a legacy in this industry that's just amazing so and our thoughts go out to him his, his wife Aaron and his three kids he's left a huge mark in this industry Sean this seems like a great place to bring you in for any uh, any personal reminiscences before we get on with the show uh, well, certainly, uh, over my years in, in Kentucky, uh, whether it be at the horse sales or, or at a gathering at McCarthy's or, or who knows, knows what it could be. Uh, Jerry was always full of life and, uh, somebody who was always very kind and, and gave people time. You know, you could always ask him a question. He was always willing to shake your hand and say hello. And, and certainly, uh, as Mike hit upon, uh, we're lucky enough to be able to stand always dreaming who will hopefully be one of his lasting legacies to the, to the industry and his first falls are dropping and, and they look fantastic. And, and, you know, Jerry, Jerry, I think had three or four always dreaming falls on his farm this, this year. And, and, uh, so he was able to see, see, you know, the culmination of a lot of hard work, uh, and, and, and to being able to see those first falls. But, uh, you know, I, I, it's a big loss for our industry. He's somebody who, uh, as Mikey said, there was always a, a helping hand there, you know, for whether it be a young Irishman coming over from Ireland to get his foot in the door or uh, just anybody who was, was looking for a piece of advice. He certainly was uh, somebody who was uh, wealth. He had his knowledge was just quite wealthy and he was uh, he was quite the character. 
while we're remembering important people in the breeding business who have a connection to you, Mike, I did want to ask you about working with Ed Houdon, who I believe was the founder of Sierra Farm. How important was he to your life and career? Oh, he was, uh, he was huge. Um, he kind of gave me a chance. I was, uh, I was at Vinery, actually, where I first met John. I was managing Vinery, and I had a couple of things Things didn't end well go there, and um, and and they gave me a chance. And we kind of, me and him, and, and Sharon as well, we we kind of had a plan, uh, kind of a 10, 15-year plan to have a self-sustaining, um, self-sustaining broodmare band down the road. And, um, you know, he wanted to buy a nice broodmare every year and a nice yearling every year. And with the goal in about between seven to eight years, they kind of self-produce themselves, and, and, and you're able to, have a have a, a broomer band that basically nourishes itself. Um, but Ed was a very he built a farm he built a, a factory in California, Sierra Aluminum, from the ground up. And he was a great man about learning how to get a how to how to build a company. You know, you just you hire good people and you let them do their job. Um, much like uh, you see a lot of the top farms here, that's how we run this farm. Um, we have a great team around us here um, and everyone everyone helps. It's, it's just the way we are. And then the decisions we made 10, 15 years ago, um, they're impacting what's happening right now with our farm. And they're like Mighty Renee, who we bought, has American Serum this year, the Solar Colony, we bought her, and her daughter, the Sending Angels, who's the Dam of the Dow, and then Golden Flare, who's the Dam of Full Flat, uh, we bought her as a yearling, um, and that's her territory. So, you know, it's life and death in the spring, in, in, here in the spring, and um, we're lucky enough we have a broomer band that's able to kind of self-generate itself um, and that takes a lot of balls it takes a lot of balls and it takes a lot of money and it takes time and it takes a lot of patience um, and we're seeing the results now but it's not always, it's not always going to be like this unfortunately certainly Mikey over the weekend uh, uh, one of those combinations you said was, was the uh, the victory of, of full flat to uh Certainly, he came on the scene last year at the Breeders' Cup, which must have been extremely exciting for you. And and then to go on on an international scale and, and win such a what could be a, a big race, maybe even a springboard for the Derby. And, and who knows, maybe you've got uh, two two Derby interests between the doll and, uh, and and this horse. But how about that? And just expand upon the excitement of seeing a horse that uh, you know you delivered and, and and brought into the world and saw its first breath all the way to winning a prestigious race over there in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I suppose, it's what we're all in this business for, really, you know. Um, you know, we are always, when Ed was here, we always were trying to breed race horses, first and foremost. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, it's just, it's, it's not it's not trying to invent, it's not trying to reinvent the wheel, it's trying to be the best of the best. Um, and, yeah, the two of them, they've done everything, they've done everything they've asked so far, full flat, that's incredible. Full flat, actually, we sold him the day Ed died. Uh, we sold the yearling, an American fair out of Beach House and for 1.4 million on the day before Ed died, and Ed died that night. And we had one yearling left to sell that day. Um, that was full flat. We sold him as the last day of book one in September that year. And then at, the, at that time, we were showing book two at the same day. Um, I'll never forget, that was the toughest day I've ever done in this industry. That was just an incredibly hard day. Um, but Nadal was in that group. So two groups as well. So it's just amazing on that day what 
if we, I suppose, if if we, if we knew back then what we know now, um, the two the two of them ended up the way they are. It's just amazing the way this industry does. Oh, that's so. incredible! That is what a day that must have been, and and it's hard yeah. not to to look back and and see uh, those horses uh, somehow somehow blessed the way that their uh, their careers have gone on. I wanted to ask a little bit more about Nadal, uh, obviously at the top of many uh, anti-post lists for this year's Kentucky Derby. Was this one who stamped himself as special right away? Yeah, he was. He was. He was a gigantic horse. He was huge. He was. I mean, uh, from what the word is on him, he still is very big. Um, he was a big, strong horse. I loved him. Um, he was nearly a little bit too big for people, which if you could believe that. Um, I blame. I blame. I thought it was a really nice cross. Blame on Pocket. There was a nice horse that Bill Mott had that year called Fucho or Macho. I think it's Fucho. He came on that year. He was a really nice two-year-old. I thought the horse going to bring a lot of money because he was just correct. He was a nice, big, strong horse, um, and we just we got sixty-five thousand for him. I, we were very we were disappointed. We didn't really make a lot of money in him. But uh, as luck would have it that year as well, um, he was bought by Randy Bradshaw, and Randy Bradshaw was a very good friend of Eddie Starr. He actually used to train horses from in California. He trained a horse called Search Eye and Canyon Crest. And we one of his best friends. Um, and Randy bought the horse, and he says, like, I kind of like him, but I don't know. It's just, uh, he's not my type of horse, but there's something about him. And sure enough, Randy got 700000 for him, so he was right. And I don't know, there's always feel like there's, there's somebody looking out for, for Nadal up there. And it just seems like everything he does seems to do right. And it seems like he has a guardian angel up there, and I hope so far it's gone this far. Hopefully it keeps going. So, But, yeah, I mean... I mean, he he was a real nice horse. I mean, I had, we had a lot of really nice horses that year. I mean, we really did. Obviously, the one point four million dollar Pharaoh was the star. The American Tyrion, we loved. He was a real nice horse. Um, and to go to full flat, I mean, we had like 15, 16 scopes on him. I thought I was going to hit an absolute home run of him, and uh, we got two hundred fifty thousand for him, which was good. But I thought it was he was going to go even more. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I said, I suppose you don't really know till afterwards what you have. Um, but looking back, I mean, it was an incredible group of horses we had that year. So, so I, I think we know who uh, who your your Derby horse is. Then we don't need to ask <laughs> you that question, as we do most guests. But uh, <laughs> being somebody who, who gets to be right there and, and raise a lot of horses, uh, do you have any any yearlings on the farm this year, or any foals that have hit the ground so far this year that uh, give you that extra little bit of excitement? Yeah, yeah, we've got a good crop of foals. Got very nice, got two really nice candy ride fillies. Have an uncle Mo, uh, one's got a general consensus, and one's got a remarkable spirit pole. Uh, we've got a very nice uh, uncle Mo pole, got a remarkable Shannon pole. He's real special right now. We're waiting. Uh, we have a uh, filly called Amy Challenge, who we bred. She ran second in the spring fever last weekend. Her mom is literally, she's waxed up. She, she could go here any minute. Um, that's a kitten's joy. Uh, really, really looking forward to that to come. Um, to drop um, our yearlings this year, we got a real nice bunch. I mean, I think physically it's a better bunch than what we had with American Theorem and all of them. Um, I've got a sort of humor, silver pocket full cold that's absolutely gorgeous. Um, a very nice uh, Arrogate of the Beach Arsenara. And then um, we got some a good Uncle Mo Silly, we got a very nice Polly Rose Silly. Got a really nice bunch. 
really nice points from top to bottom. I mean, I, I, I really I don't want to single any of them out, but there's just some really nice, some real special horses. Mike, before we let you get out of here, I did want to ask a little bit more about your background. When did you first get involved in racing, and what drew you to the sport? I suppose I grew up in Ireland. Um, in Kenny, I kind of grew up uh, doing a lot of uh, riding, uh, show jumping, and hunting, those kind of things. Um, I went to college. It wasn't really until I went to college. I went to college in the University of Limerick that I, um, in my first year, my uncle is Pat Costello. He has Paramount sales here. He was actually a drum Kenny farm at the time, and he was over here anyway when he heard that I was in college this summer. So I came over for a summer in Kentucky, and I just kind of fell in love with this place. And it wasn't really until then that I really piqued my interest in racing. I suppose I really, I mean, we followed racing at home, but it wasn't huge. It was just more horsemanship there. Um, but when I came to Kentucky, I came back and, uh, that first year, the first year or two, that was the year Tisdale and Giant Causeway. I would really credit sure. that's kind of one of the races that really kind of just just got me into the business. That was just one of the most phenomenal races I've ever seen. Um, and to me, that would be kind of one of the pivotal moments, I suppose, in my life. But, um, but yeah, I didn't really, didn't really have a whole lot of racing growing up. It was just more horsemanship. But, uh, but yeah, once I went to college, that was kind of where it started off. So, but I've been here since 2000 and full time since 2002. So um, that uh, feels awful long when I say it. <laughs> <laughs> I do see that race. You know, we talk about so many races on on a regular basis. I'm surprised that race doesn't get a little bit more attention among uh, various horse players because yeah. it really was such a, not only was it an amazing spectacle, but it's, it's resonated on down the years with the success that they've, yeah, uh, that, yeah. that they've both had. I think that's really interesting that that would be the race for somebody who then gets involved in the breeding business. Have you followed those two in particular throughout their stallion careers? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like when I so when I first came over here, I I worked in a cotton star, and I don't forget the the first couple of years we were breeding Causeway and Entertainment now as well when they were first starting off. And uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 been fun following them along and breeding through them. And, and you know, there are there are two characters. You know, Tiz now obviously is just a great character about him. Sean knows well, and uh, Giant Causeway is just left an absolute sellable mark in the whole industry. The uh, sons, his daughters, everything. Uh, we have a couple of daughters of Giant Causeway here on the farm, actually, and uh, you know it's just it's just funny the way it all ends up, really. But uh, you know, you you watch this race in Ireland where there's two heavyweights going at it on a stretch, and then you come to Kentucky and you're taking the mare over to the shed to break them. It's just <laughs> it's funny. It's very it's just very surreal. I suppose. So. Oh, that's fantastic stuff. Well, Mike, it was great having you on. Thank you so much for your time today. We'll, we're going to be following these journeys with great interest throughout this Triple Crown season with Full Flat and Nadal, and hopefully we'll get another update from you soon. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for the, thanks for the call, and, yeah, give me a call anytime. I'd love to come on again. For the middle segment on today's show, I'm going to turn things over to our correspondent, Naomi Tucker. Charlie Marquez joins me on the couch here at Laurel Park and you've only been riding since early January and you've already racked up 18 wins. First winner on the 9th of January. How are you feeling so far? Uh, I feel great. I'm just blessed to be able to be riding um, at such a young age. Truly an honor. How old are you? I'm 17. I just turned 17 January 25th. So I'm pretty young to be in this game, but it is what it is. Well, your family are 
from a racing dynasty in a way your dad was a jockey your grandfather was a jockey how does that affect you and are they supportive my grandfather passed away last year but um my dad has helped me a lot um, throughout my riding career I talk to him after every race he always tells me what I do wrong and what I've done well you know even when I win the race he always has something to say so he's helped me a long way um, and hopefully I can get better do you guys watch the tapes together or how, how does that work um, my dad is in Puerto Rico right now but he always watches me on the TV and um, once I get back to the room after the races we talk for 20 25 minutes after every race and um, he just explains what I, what I could have done to win or whatever happened in the race he'll just point me towards the right direction for the next race well it certainly seems to have been working when did you start thinking about pursuing this as a career or when did you start riding horses um, I've always wanted to be a jockey like forever I started riding horses when I was four years old at um, a place named Woodland Park it started off like show jumping just showing in the ring and um then I got in with EHM Stables' Betty McHugh, and um, I started doing the pony races. And um, I was like, wow, racing is so much fun. And then, um, you know, I got bigger and stronger, and I rode my own horse, Mass Strike. I rode him in a couple amateur races, not on the track, like point-to-points. And I was like, wow, I think racing's for me. Where was that, the point-to-points? Um, I rode at Middleburg, Virginia, um, Green Spring, up in Moncton, uh, Blue Ridge, Virginia. I rode quite a few of those races with him. That first pony race, how did that feel? What was that like? Uh, it was amazing. It was Merrill Million Day here. I'm trying to think what year it was. 2014. I rode here on a horse named Good Time Charlie. I remember. Merrill Million Day. My dad was here. He rode on the day. That day, um, mom, my aunt was here. Everyone was here. It was, it was pretty awesome. So what is it about horse racing that makes it so special to you? I have a connection with the horses, you know, it's, I can't, it's hard, to, that's hard to explain, I mean, um, I do it not because of the money, but because I love the animal, you know, um, I just love the rush of the horses running as fast as they can, you know. What is it like trying to combine a starting out career with still being in school? There's some days where I'm tired, come home after a long day, and you know, the last thing you want to do is, you know, schoolwork, but that's important you know I don't want to be a dropout and you know not have a diploma in case I get hurt or something you know you ne- nothing nothing's guaranteed you got to do what you got to do I deal with it I get everything done and um hopefully it helps me in the long run you are homeschooled or how does this work um we were going to get homeschooled but then I decided to um get my GED so I have taken two two of the tests already and I passed them both thankfully but I come home and I have to study every night to um, pass the other two I have to take and once I pass those two then I get my diploma so that's good. What would a normal day look like for you? You head out to the track early in the morning to get on horses like you did this morning Yeah. and then what you go home or you go to the races? I usually get up around 5:30, you know gallop till 9 9:30. go home you know clean up come to the jocks room um, depending on what my weight is, reduce or jog on the treadmill, whatever I have to do. You know, read the program, watch the races that I'm not in, and, you know, just prepare for my races. And then the schoolwork comes oh. afterwards? Um, <laughs> no, I'm just trying to see, because it sounds like you're very busy. Yeah. After after the races, um, I come home, eat a little something, and then study, usually on the computer, study for the GED test. 
Well, you must have a lot of self-motivation to be able to keep that up at your age. I wanted to ride my whole life, so, you know, I deal with it. There's been days where I'm tired, you know, when I ride at Penn National at night and Laurel here, you know, I get tired. I signed up for it, so, you know, I have to do what I have to do. How often do you ride on the other tracks in this circuit? I rode at Penn National last Saturday for my first time. Um, I rode two races over there, and I won both of them. So it was pretty pretty awesome. I have to go there tonight. But I just started doing that, and I enjoy it. Who are you on tonight? Have they got a chance? Yes, I do. Hugh McMahon's horse. Um, six race, six to one. I like them. Oh, well, we better get this out before you get on that horse tonight. And what was your first experience like walking into the weighing room as a licensed jockey? Is that a daunting experience, or what is the atmosphere like in there? I was really nervous, to be honest with you. I never thought it would happen, but it did, and it was... I was I was very nervous, but I was very excited and emotional. How were the other jockeys like, and the valets as well? Were they all welcoming? Yes, they were very welcoming. Um, I was encouraged by everyone in there, so it was pretty uh, meaningful. We'll get back to how well you've been doing over the last few weeks. Uh, aside from the fact that you obviously watch back your races and you're improving a lot, how's the experience been for you? I love racing. It's it's something special you know i hope i can do it forever i've I've always wanted to do it so you know it's really it's really special to me but it's nothing like i thought it was going to be for sure what's the difference how does it stack up to what you thought it was going to be like there's a lot of early you know hard work that goes into becoming a jockey and you know being successful or a lot of early mornings hard work pays off though me and Lacey do great together I started off over there galloping horses, and I think me and her do so well because, you know, I have a connection with her horses. I've galloped a bunch of them before in the morning, so, you know, I know how they are. I know how they feel, so that's been, that benefits a lot. That was going to be one of my questions. Your relationship, your partnership with the Lacey Godette stable has been very beneficial for both. How did it come about? I started galloping on the track in June of last year. I started off with Jose Corrales. I got some horses for him. Lisa Gaudet and my mom are their friends, so she texted my mom and said, "Hey, we could help. Uh, we could use Charlie down here." So I went down and I just love the vibe down there. And um, her horses are all very well trained and very nice to get along with. So it kind of just went up from there. How does it work in terms of communication? Has she given you any tips or does she give you instructions before the race? She doesn't really give me instructions. You know, I know how all her horses go um, just because I've galloped them in the morning. You know, I just know how they just what they like and, you know, what they do, their habits. But I think that's benefit me a lot, getting along with the horses early in the morning, just getting a feel for them. When she's not the only stable you've been successful for, you're mentioning you, McMain. You've also done quite well for Mike Trombetta. How many different trainings do you go to in the morning to sit on their horses? I walk around to every barn on the backside, um, you know, ask everyone if they need help. Hopefully they do so, you know, I can get a feel for the horses in the barn and um, maybe they'll put me on something in the afternoon. Definitely very hard working. What would have been your biggest challenge to date or the biggest learning curve so far? There's many challenges that I deal with on the normal. Um, I'm so young, so mental stage, I guess you could say. I mean, people text me, you know, hurtful things, you know, when I don't win or something, you know. But, you know, you just got to brush it off and they're, they're just hurt in the end because they're not doing what you're doing. For instance, there was a lot of pressure on you taking the ride on handrail for Lacey Goddard. First leg of the Stronach 5. How was that 
for you? It, it was only a five grand claiming race, but because of the Shronic Five, all of a sudden, so many more people were tuning in. Yeah, that that was an upset race. Um, I that handrail should have won. That was my fault, but um, I don't pay t- too much attention to any of the betting Stronic Five, any of that. I do truly think that handrail should have won that race, but you know. I think you're being harsh on yourself. I think it you are under a lot of pressure, and yeah. races like that, when all of a sudden the whole country seems to be looking at you, that must be tricky. Right. Have you got anyone helping you with this or support? My agent Kevin. I tell him everything, and he just sits there, and listens, and laughs with me. But um, he's helped me a lot. You know, understand the mental stage of horse racing. You know, it's not just being able to ride and be just a great rider. You know, you have to deal with a lot of things that come along with riding. You know hateful things that come towards you for not winning you know you know the money is a big thing you know a lot of that changes people's minds just got to remain humble for as long as you can because that helps along a long way have there been a lot of people that reach out to you via for example social media commenting on your rides um there's been a few people that say disrespectful things but there's a lot of people that are very proud of me and say um very nice things about me so you know it, it equals off it helps a lot seeing nice comments does your dad give you any advice in relation to that i'm assuming he would have dealt with it all as well father said just to ignore it it's they're just upset that they're not in a position that i am especially at such a young age you know it's it is what it is it's going to happen to everyone talking about role models aside from your father who do you look up to in this industry my mother my mother for sure um she gallops she works with the vet um She's galloped for whew, 40 years probably. Um, she was going to be a jockey. My mom was going to be a jockey and um, a horse broke down with her and she broke her shoulder and all the ribs on one side. And um, She didn't want to ride after that, but I would have loved to watch her ride. That would have been amazing. But yeah, she's taught me a lot with the horses. Um, you know, she show rides as well, so she helped me along with that as well. But, you know, she just gives me a feel for the horse. It's, it's hard to explain, but she's the one that's been there forever she's before everyone well it's very good to hear that you have such a strong network of support around you talking a little bit about perhaps some other jockeys that have gone through similar paths here uh, weston hamilton won the outstanding apprentice eclipse award in 2018 would that be something you would aspire to um my goal is to win the eclipse this year um i'm going to do whatever i can to do that hopefully it happens you know and that'd be crazy if i won that <laughs> But yeah, that's something I've always wanted. I've dreamed of being a club's jockey, so that's where I'm heading, hopefully. What do you think would need to happen to get you there? Hard work and dedication, you know, as many wins as I can in the afternoon. Hard work, going different tracks everywhere, you know, racking up as many wins as I possibly can. Not only Weston Hammond, but for example, Ken Desermo started his career out here, and of course he's done incredibly well. What do you think makes Maryland such a good place for young and up-and-coming jockeys? Maryland is a great circuit for bug riders. There's many opportunities that are given to um, bug riders. It's kind of a small community, so everyone knows each other. So that benefits a lot. Everyone here is um, generous when it comes to riding. So if I'm in trouble and I say, hey, I need a shot, you know, they'll help me out. They don't want me to get hurt or anyone else to get hurt. That helps. Talking a little about the jockey colony here, how challenging is it for you to ride among guys such as Trevor McCarthy, Sheldon Russell, who are consistent high percentage scorers? At times it can be difficult, 
I just got beat in nose by Trevor on, on Sunday. I don't look at it as like that. We're all family. We're all jockeys. Just because I'm 17 and they're 25, 26, and, you know, they're well off, I'll do whatever I can to beat them. I don't want them to, you know, take it easy on me because I'm such a young jockey. I work as hard as they do. I, I hope I can have the outcome that they did. In terms of other long-term goals, aside from the fact you say you want to be an Eclipse Award-winning jockey, which is a lofty career objective to have, and a great one, any other circuits that you would love to ride on if you'd get the chance? Once I finish my bug, I'd like to go ride in New York. That'd be pretty awesome to ride in New York, you know, ride a bunch of stake horses, um, hopefully get a chance to ride in the Kentucky Derby. Which people would help you get there, you think? My agent, Kevin, of course, my mom, my dad, you know, everyone that's been here with me now, you know, I can't forget any of them. Of course, the people up in New York that would help me out. I've talked to Angel Cordero and um, Jose Ortiz and Irad Ortiz, and um, they all are willing to help me get to where I want to go. Yeah, I read somewhere that the Ortiz brothers are two jockeys that you very much look up to. Have you had the chance to learn a little bit from them, or do they give you advice sometimes? Yeah, when Irad was here riding on the stake day, um, we talked a lot, and he helped me on the equisizer. He's a very good jockey. Jose and I, we've became friends since I started riding. They're really close with my father. I call and text Jose here and there, and um, he tells me how I'm riding and what I need to fix and whatever. But um, I look up to them because they're, they're great. They're one of the best. Well, you certainly have shown incredible improvement in such a short span of time. Another reason why I wanted to interview today. Well, Charlie, you've done so well. Thank you so much for joining me here. And, of course, we're going to be following you throughout your career and hope that you actually make it to become an Eclipse Award-winning rider. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for that, Naomi. We're going to close out the show today with a man we've been wanting to have on, and we finally get the opportunity to do it on the heels of some big announcements yesterday. He's the president and CEO of the Breeders' Cup, Drew Fleming. Drew, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Um, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Very excited to get you to elaborate a little bit on some of the announcements made yesterday in terms of both safety protocols at the Breeders' Cup and also these purse increases. Let's start with the purse increases. Uh, what are the new, the fun stuff, what, what are the new, uh, the, the new amounts being dropped on some of these big races? And I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts about this. No, we're, we're very, very excited and, and proud. Um, so we, we announced yesterday an aggregate of a $4 million increase in purses, um, which would be an additional $1 million to the Classic, making it $7 million, $2 million to the Turf, making it $6 million, and $1 million to the Dirt Mile, making it $2 million, which in all is $35 million in, of purses and awards over the two days. So uh, uh, our board, our team, we're, we're very, very pumped that um, we're able to do this. And um, you know, we strongly believe in strong purses and getting the best purses and um, being competitive internationally. And uh, we hope we're sending a strong message that uh, you know, racing is strong and, and we're very excited. And looking at the classic specifically, that then becomes the richest race run in North America, if I'm not mistaken, which seems like an appropriate position for it to have. <laughs> No, absolutely. We're we're excited, and uh, 
this will be we're, we're at Keeneland this year. The, the last time we were at Keeneland was in 2015. Um, and I'd, I'd like to note that we have increased purses by seven and a half million dollars since the last time we were there. So. <laughs> a very significant amount in a, in a short period of time. While we're talking about Keeneland and the Breeders' Cup, I mean, it's always the, the I say always like we've done it more than once. But back in 2015, such a special place to have the event. What are you most looking forward to about having the Breeders' Cup once again in the seat of the breeding industry in the USA? Well, it, it's it's great to, to be here. I mean, Keeneland was so phenomenal in 2015. Uh, it was supported by Rave International Reviews. And I think, to me, the, the bar is set really, really high. And so we've been working now for multiple years. And um, construction, believe it or not, on the temporary venue is starting a couple months. And so we, we, we are very pumped. I, I think since the last time we've been there, they're, they're av- in addition to the $7.5 million of purse increases, and we've added a new race, the Juvenile Turf Sprint. Um, we now have the Future Stars Friday concept, which is which is really done well, and I, I think it brings a theme to the day and a theme to the weekend. Um, Keeneland, I, I'd like to give them some credit. They, they've invested approximately five million dollars in infrastructure, um, in, in, excluding the temporary infrastructure, and they have a great new culinary team headed by Chef Mark, who's going to be showcasing a bunch of local produce and um, you know, goods in the Kentucky region. But we're continuing to also, in addition to being a you know, world-class racing event, um, we're also heavily focused on the lifestyle and we'll have champagne bars, bourbon lounges. So all in all, it's, it's going to be a, a great, great uh, world championship. I'm looking forward to it. I love some of those particular call-outs you made as well. Keeneland's such a special place and it's a great marriage with the Breeders' Cup, in my opinion. I've talked to some fans who react to the necessity of having higher prices at a venue like Keeneland, but it's just it's a question of supply and demand. And the, the great thing about the Breeders' Cup moving around, there will be venues for fans to go to that are a little more uh, accessible in, in terms of price. But it's wonderful to be able to have a boutique version of the Breeders' Cup. And to me, it's a question where the benefits of having it there and the special feeling of it is potentially worth the extra money. And the good news is, Hey, if that's a little out of your price range, you can target uh, an event in a, in a future year. What kind of feedback have you gotten from the, the rank and file horse players about the decision to return the breeders cup to Keeneland? Well, it's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, we, we always try to have ticket packages that uh, range in spectrum based on experience and cost. Um, I, I'd like to point out, you, you can buy a, a Friday ticket to the Breeders' Cup of General Admission for $50. It's $75 on Saturday. But we also have venues like The Hill, where it's, I believe it's $40 per car. Um, and then those range, obviously, to $1,000 a day for a very high-end premium experience. Um, but when you compare it to some other thoroughbred events, I, I think we're very, very price conscious. We could obviously charge a lot more money. Um, but we intentionally choose not to do so. I mean, we've, we've got to make overhead and we've got to pay for the $35 million in person somehow. Um, but, but we're also very cognizant that this is an industry event. This is a breeder's event. And so we do try and make it uh, affordable for everyone. I think that's a great goal. I want to talk about the new safety reforms in the wake of the Breeders' Cup last year. I know you had a, essentially a study done by Dr. Larry Bramlage. Is that right? And, and the, this new announcement, was that born from uh, from those conclusions? 
Well, it, it, it's born, yeah, slightly from that, and then also the, the formation of the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition. But um, our, our, our announcement yesterday, we, we have adopted six new reforms from uh, Dr. Blandlidge's report. And um, what we were trying to do with the report was, uh, one, show to the world how seriously we're taking safety, and second, um, show that we're transparent. And I, and I think if anybody read that, and the feedback that I got was very positive, um, that, you know, one, we're looking into this um, both financially with our time and energy, and two, we're, we're making real efforts to make racing safer. And so um, Dr. Bramlage um, recommended six reforms, then we're going to be adopting all six moving forward. Um, in addition to that, we've we played a very big role in the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition, which was announced this past November, where we announced uh, 19 reforms. We've since added a couple. And we're going to continue to work on that to you know, evolve the game uh, because we know we need to make it better and we're dedicated to doing so. I want to talk a little specifically about the reforms. One thing that I noticed was it seemed like they were trying to streamline the process. It's such a, a difficult thing to be able to have uh, every horse on the grounds essentially looked over. But it, it felt to me like that was a lot more realistic goal after reading through these proposed reforms. What in here do you think will have the most significance in that regard? Well, I mean, I, I think all six are going to be very material and helpful. Um, we, we start looking at Breeders' Cup horses, you know, this time of year to try and figure out what potential fields may be. Um, we have a robust out-of-competition testing that starts six months out. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, Dr. Bramlage made some good points about pre-identifying some more um, horses before they, before they race. So that we can, you know, the more familiarity we have, the, the better judgment um, our, our vet panel and uh, the state vets can make. I want to talk about the diagnostic imaging. I thought that was a really interesting idea. Is there a specific plan in place for how that might be utilized to help make the Breeders' Cup a safer event? We, yeah, so, so we're, we're still working through the details. Um, but, but with the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition, I, I know you said Santa Anita has adopted the PET scan. Um, we're looking at standing MRIs. Obviously, radiographs have been around for a while. So it's, it's really interesting and it's great for the business that you've got five major racetracks and then the Breeders' Cup um, meeting uh, twice a month and exchanging these ideas so that it is the advancements in new technology, but we're all working together uh, to figure out um, what will really improve the game. The idea of extra scrutiny was also very interesting. I was curious, maybe it's too early days for this question too, but I was curious if you had any process in mind of how that's going to be evaluated or and who's going to be doing the, the, the looking to make conclusions based on that. Well, we have a vet panel of um, 12 to 14 vets in addition to um, the team and we'll have their own vets, Dr. Monday, and then we have um, Kentucky State vets. Uh, I think where Dr. Bramlage was going with the extra scrutiny was was talking about walking horses around in circles in both directions, um, so you get a, an additional viewpoint uh, as far as you know veterinarians making some diagnosis. I think that's a great idea. It just seems so much more manageable if you have a situation where every horse that you need to be looking at is going to be in a designated place at some point. It, it feels like that should make it much harder for anything to, to, to fall through the cracks and just feels like a, a good idea and a positive step. 
I want to talk about the uh, the, the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition a little bit more in general. As you mentioned, you guys have been very involved from the beginning. What is going on with the, the organization in general? What kind, of, uh, what kind of role do you continue to play with it? Yeah, so, so we meet um, twice a month, and we meet uh, all these groups meet in person once a month. And we originally announced uh, um, 19 reforms. Um, that are being that are in the in the process of being implemented on a, a state by state basis, either through uh, regulatory change, legislative change, or in some cases house rules. Uh, but while that um, pro implementation process is ongoing, we are also uh, looking at new reforms, and, and we've got three subcommittees. Um, one would be racetrack uh, safety and integrity. The second would be um, racing surfaces. And the third would be medication and scientific advisory, which those subcommittees are made up not only of coalition members, but I'd say um, bright minds within the field and outside the thoroughbred business that are, that are coming up with best practices um, for further reforms and updates. We're, we're doing a deep, comprehensive approach um, so we're really looking into analysis and determining best practices. And granted, you know, it, it is taking some time, um, uh, but, but we're very confident uh, in the end result that, that will come. With the coalition that you have, it does feel like you've got a lot of power players who are going to hopefully be on the same page about implementing these things. Not always an easy thing in thoroughbred racing, but it, it seems like the early indications are that everybody involved is serious about wanting to make positive change in these regards. Absolutely. Everybody's serious, both from a financial standpoint, from a time standpoint, uh, and from an energy standpoint where, um, again, we're, we're meeting continually and everybody um, understands the severity of the issues and are working for a common goal. The Breeders' Cup Challenge Series is something we always have a lot of fun following throughout the year, both on this show and over on the flagship show, the In the Money Players podcast. Any new developments or things you're particularly looking forward to with the Challenge Series for this year? Um, well, if, if you saw another announcement that we made yesterday was um, as far as the Challenge Series races, if you're a track that um, isn't adopting the reforms that the Safety Coalition is adopting, we're, we're not able to host the Challenge Series race at those tracks. Um, that, that is a way for us, again, to show our seriousness of the issue and, and our belief in um, making this game better. That is uh, that that that's definitely a, a serious a serious factor and uh, something that I think racing fans will be happy to hear and it's great to see the Breeders Cup taking a leadership role when it comes to these safety issues. It's something that we as horse fans uh, obviously take incredibly seriously and when we talk to other people in our lives about racing it's nice to be able to have concrete things like the ones we've been discussing to point to as as changes i'm sure there'll be more announcements and developments throughout the year drew and we'd love it if you would uh, come on here again and talk to us about all the news happening at the breeders cup it's been uh, great to finally get you on here no i appreciate it um one, one final thing uh, before we leave, um, tickets to, to the Breeders' Cup go on sale to the public this, this coming Monday, March the 9th. And the best way to do it, um, because of the demand, would be to go to our website at www.breederscup.com. 
Oh, excellent. That's very good to know. We know a lot of people very much looking forward to nailing down their travel plans. We'll know a lot more who will be heading over for the Breeders' Cup betting challenge as well, which is uh, back on such a, a positive trajectory in no small measure, Drew, due to the work that you did along with the, the other folks on the, the betting committee I know it's early, but any changes in uh, in betting at this year's Breeders' Cup that have been discussed to this point, or is it all sort of a work in progress? Um, it's it's a work in progress. Uh, last year was the um, highest handle the Breeders' Cups had in the history of the Breeders' Cup. Um, so we, we've got a strong wagering committee, uh, and um, we what we try to do is meet with um, you know horse players like yourself to get candid feedback so that we can have the best product for our customer base. Cause um, we definitely, the Breeders Cup definitely sees the value uh, in the horse player and all they do for our sport. And I'll continue to encourage our fans uh, who are no shrinking violets to contact us, uh, both Jonathan Kinchin and myself. We love to hear fan feedback when it comes to wagering across the country and the Breeders' Cup specifically. And if we can help uh, funnel some of the messaging from folks out there in the audience and continue to, in, in some small way, be able to, to help out with an event that I know for me is the center place of uh, my horse playing year. And I know that's the case for a lot in our audience as well. Drew Fleming, thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you guys. It's, it's always a pleasure and look forward to um, talking to you soon. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. I want to thank our guests, Mike Callanan, Charlie Marquez Jr., and Drew Fleming of the Breeders' Cup. Thank you so much to Sean Tugel, as always, for his contributions, and Naomi Tucker as well, doing a great job bringing us content from down there at her home base of Laurel Park. I also want to thank all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way.